and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for December, which is our last podcast of 2016, where we will look back at the year that has passed and attempt to make some sort of predictions for the coming year. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I'm the news editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. Markets this year have been hit by one shock after another, Brexit and Donald Trump's victory in the US presidential election being the two biggest ones, arguably. Next year, Europe comes into focus as a number of elections in the region could cement the rise of the populist movements that we've seen across the globe. Joining me in the studio to talk about this year and possibly make some predictions for 2017 is Alexis Gray, a European economist at Vanguard and Vanguard's chief economist for Europe, Dr. Peter Westaway. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So um, to start off with, 2016, as we've already mentioned, has seen the growth of populist movements across the globe, and this trend is likely to continue into 2017 too. So what are your expectations for next year? Well, I think it's interesting that this this sort of movement of populism has been building for several years, and I think 2016 was the year where it manifested itself mm. more significantly, obviously with you know Britain's vote to leave the European Union, and then the election of Donald Trump in the US. But... There have been signs for a while across some developed countries that uh, you know, a significant proportion of people are unhappy with the political system and unhappy with, um, I guess, the fact that their wages haven't been rising, their quality of life doesn't seem to have been improving for some time. You know, I think mm. since the financial crisis, that's really been evident as well. So next year, I think that you're going to see similar flavours. I mean, it's Obviously, very difficult to say whether we'd see any more of these shock outcomes, but the sort of events that we're looking at are really, as you mentioned, some of these elections coming across Europe. So France is having presidential elections in April and May where there's a far-right candidate, Marine Le Pen, who is getting a significant proportion of the vote but doesn't look like she could win, um, but she would push to have France leave the Euro or the European Union. So that could be a significant mm. tail risk. Um, later in the year, you have elections in Germany where, to be honest, Angela Merkel looks likely to win. So I think we don't expect some sort of far right or you know um, anti-EU party like the AFD to get in. So, um, But this sort of sentiment, I think, is going to be there humming along in the background across the euro area and something to really watch for to see if the union, either the currency union or the monetary union, breaks up. Turning to European markets, um, how does the rise of these populist movements affect the markets themselves? I mean, is there something that investors should be particularly concerned about? I think the main issue that investors should be concerned about is whether or not these populist movements lead to the potential disintegration of the European Union or perhaps the euro to start Mm. unravelling itself. We already saw, we got a foretaste of this during the sovereign debt crisis starting in 2013 uh, when the markets were speculating quite heavily about that possibility. The ECB then came in and and put a short up up the euro for a while. But these new political developments which potentially could lead to a a country voluntarily wanting to leave the the monetary Mm. union I think is a worry. What's perhaps most interesting though is that certainly compared to the days of the sovereign debt crisis. I think the markets are much more used to this now. I don't think they're seeing this as a likely event. It's a real tail risk rather than something that really is on on the, the radar screen. So 
even though these these political events are coming up next year, I don't think it's in anybody's central case that Le Pen will get in in France or something will happen in Germany that will cause it all to unravel. But of course, if if we've learnt one thing from what's happened this year is that people's central cases yeah. go go by the board pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and another thing that we've seen this year starting is a move away from monetary policy more towards fiscal expansion in the UK and the US. So... Um, what's your view on that? Is that? Do you think that that's something that will work as it is intended? I mean, I think we've started to see that. I think many mm-hmm. commentators, ourselves included, think there's more that maybe needs doing on that, especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the place it's happened most is in the United States, where the speculation about what the new administration is going to do has already caused the markets to rally, the yield curve to shift upwards in response. I think we're slightly sceptical about how effective those fiscal measures are going to be. Let's not forget, mm. we haven't even seen what the size of the, the measures are yet, and and um, they just may not be that, that effective, and monetary policy might undo some of it by, by the extent to which it's tightened. But, yes, yeah, certainly in the UK, we've seen a little bit more policy loosening compared to the austerity years. But it's probably here in, in not here, but in the euro area, across the channel in Europe, mm. where I think, there's the most need for a, a proper fiscal stimulus and that's probably the place where it's least likely to happen because mm. the countries that can afford to, to, to be a bit more loose on fiscal policy, Germany particularly, are probably politically least likely to do it. So that yeah. makes it, um, you know, I think I think we need to hold our breath a bit before we're mm. going to see this coming along. Yeah. Um, and of course, turning to the UK, we can't ignore the the biggest event that that we've seen this year, which has been uh, Brexit. And again, that as you said, it was one that wasn't really expected. But but you can't predict things nowadays. So, so what can we expect from the negotiations going into twenty seventeen? Do Do you believe that Article Fifty will actually be triggered next year, at the beginning of next year, as as expected? I think that you know the greatest likelihood is that you do get Article Fifty triggered <clears throat> early next year. But of course. There is still a possibility. As it stands, the uh, the government needs to pass that through Parliament, so you know that there may be a delay there. But in all likelihood, you get Article 50 triggered, and then the two-year negotiating window will begin. Um, now, when exactly you start to see some outcomes from that negotiation remains to be seen. Two years is a long time. Europe has a tendency to make deals at the last minute, so I don't know that we'd necessarily get a lot of clarity right up front. So we may be in for an extended period of uncertainty where firms don't know whether or not we remain in the single market, although it seems increasingly unlikely. Uh, and some of the, the laws around you know, whether, whether or not we have tariffs, whether we have you know immigration controls that haven't been there, those things won't be crystallised, I think, till 2018 and possibly 2019. And what's the worst case scenario that that you can foresee? And is that something that's likely to happen at all? Increasingly, I think the worst case scenario and the most likely scenario are sort of uncomfortably close to each Mm. other, unlike some of the other things that we've been talking about where it's a tail risk. I don't see... So what do I mean by the, the worst case? I would say... Brexit goes ahead, it's a hard Brexit where the UK loses access to the single market, has to fall back on the the trading rules of the World Trade Organization, which sounds very easy if you say it quickly, but it actually takes a very long time for that to get Mm -hmm. sorted out. Not two years, but five, six, ten years. And so the UK's trading position is not going to be clear for for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Against that, all of the short-term 
costs of Brexit that were supposed to come through haven't really happened yet. So perhaps some of those predictions are, are equally um, over pessimistic. Maybe it won't be quite so mm. bad, but certainly most of the studies and people who, who study trade deals are very worried about some of the potential costs of of this um, reconfiguration of the UK's trading arrangements. So I guess we're in for long-term uncertainty and, and beyond 2017 potentially as well. I think that's right. Lastly, I guess another thing that Brexit has, has brought about a significant fall in the value of, of sterling. So uh, we've seen we've seen a drop around 15% um, against um, against the dollar um, year to date. So is this something that you expect to, to carry on or do you think it's reached a floor now? Is it likely to to strengthen further in 2017 um, and what are, what are we likely to see in other currencies next year as well? Yeah, I think it's it's right that sterling has fallen significantly, particularly since the vote, but it's interesting as well to look back since, you know, say a year before the vote because mm. I think as soon as the prospect of a referendum came about, you started to see sterling falling in value relative to the euro and the US dollar given the possibility of a Brexit. So we've had a pretty significant move already and I think that the largest move has already happened. Now, where we go from here really depends on what sort of deal comes out. So you see this with the news cycle. The market tends to react, um, the pound tends to, to rally when you, uh, when, when a soft Brexit is more likely, which means, you know, less immigration controls mm. and less likelihood of tariffs. And equally, on the other side, you have um, the pos- possibility of a hard Brexit tends to lead towards a fall in the pound. So I think on balance, given that our I think our base case is a hard Brexit. I think a weaker pound is more likely than a than a stronger pound at this point. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, part of the weakness in the pound, of course, is because the prospects for monetary policy is that it's going to be slightly easier mm. than it previously would have been. So that explains a small part of it. But as Alexis says, I think the main explanation is if the trading relationships are going to deteriorate, as we think they will, then you know, what we economists call the equilibrium exchange rate is going to just be lower in order to... Yeah. effectively compensate for that and and you know very difficult to predict exactly how much that would be but yeah i don't think we can rule out that sterling needs to fall mm-hmm. fall further and what are your expectations for um the euro and the dollar and the dollar lastly given the, the backdrop that we've got at the moment well i mean obviously the the ecb have just um recently announced an extension of yeah. their monetary stimulus although perhaps slightly less um, fulsome than, than they've previously been expected to do. And with the likelihood of the US needing to tighten policy, all of those factors suggest that the dollar could strengthen against the euro. But of course, mm. that's already all known in the market. Mm. So whether that has, that should already be reflected in the price. So it's not obvious that that's going to be the directional move. So yeah. we're not great believers in predicting currency movements mm. over the short run. It's a, it's a bit of a mugs game. I guess it'll be an interesting year. Uh, it's just a year to come. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time to both of you. Um, that's all we have time for today. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. I'm Jane Arana and I'm an Asset Management Correspondent at Investment Week. This year has certainly been a busy one for the US, as investors around the world have watched the Fed with bated breath before each interest rate decision as it raised hikes for the first time since the financial crisis at the end of 2015. Politics has also played a big part in economics and will continue to do so as the country voted for Donald Trump to be its 45th president, something which markets haven't quite made their minds up about yet. 
I'm here with Ed Smith, Asset Allocation Strategist at Rathbones, to talk some more about the outlook for the US as we head into 2017. So Ed, what can we expect from President-elect Trump next year and how might this impact the US economy? In all honesty, I don't think anyone really knows exactly which policies Trump will manage to enact or even which policies he may pursue and that's quite unusual um, when we start a, a new presidential year. Given that uncertainty, it's very surprising that markets seem to have reacted so positively. Usually when there's a lot of economic and policy uncertainty, we'd expect um, them to react a little more nervously, to discount tomorrow's earnings into today's price at a more punitive rate, a more cautious rate. That hasn't happened. The equity risk premium, that discount rate, seems to have fallen to a four-year low. Uh, and that, for us, makes us a little nervous. Markets seem to be discounting all of Trump's you know, pro-growth, pro-market policies, and very few of the bad policies, protectionism being the most prominent one. We think this is uh, a bit of a leap of faith. We don't have much to go on from the Trump team, uh, but one of the sort of most uh, cogent policy documents is his 100-day uh, plan, his contract with the American voter. It's a really interesting document. It's set out as a contract signed in the bottom left by Donald Trump and on the bottom right there's a little blank space for each American voter to, to countersign. It's quite a neat trick and also quite a powerful one. In that document protectionism is front and centre. It's perhaps more prominent than cutting taxes and spending on infrastructure. So to discount the bad policies, again, is a bit of a leap of faith. And remember that his big fiscal splurge is going to need to be paid for. There's a lot of hot fiscal hawks in the Republican parties who will need to pass this through Congress. He's got to come up with a plan that means that not much is added to the national debt. He thinks his trade policy will pay for a lot of his fiscal policy. So the fact that the markets seem to be separating the two leaves us uh, a little nervous. So which sectors will come up top under his administration and which do you think will be the losers? Well, I think there's two um, obvious ones. Uh, Defence, he's spoken a lot about that in the campaign and that's done very well since um, uh, his uh, election success. Although, of course, over the last few days we have had a bit of a wobble when Trump's come out saying uh, that the Lockheed Martin uh, uh, plane contracts are way over budget. I suspect that will get dialed down when by his uh, uh, his secretary of of, of defence. Uh, but I think globally the defence sector should do well too, uh, because Trump is likely to put a lot of political pressure on other economies to uh, fulfil their commitment of spending two percent of GDP on defence under uh, uh, UN um, and NATO um, commitments, which very few economies. Are doing. Um, so there's a, a global boost there to that sector. Infrastructure is the other obvious one. Many infrastructure related equities, you know, selling the raw materials or the construction services um, needed to build roads, lay broadband cables, etc. They've done very, very well uh, and are likely to continue um, to do so. Thirdly, uh, perhaps a less obvious one, regional banks. Um, Many of Trump's policies are inflationary, steeper yield curve helps banks in general, and he's also started talking about uh, 
reinstating or coming up with some sort of new Glass-Steagall Act. Glass-Steagall was repealed by Bill Clinton, but it's effectively the act that separates Wall Street from Main Street. If Trump makes it harder for investment banks to do business on Main Street and the retail space, uh, then regional banks should take more of the pie. So Trump aside, what other potential headwinds does the US economy face next year? I think wage inflation is uh, is the key one. Trump aside, uh, a lot of you know, if Trump clamps down on, Im- on immigration, then that will push up wage inflation. But there's a lot of natural upward pressure anyway. Um, you know, our uh, wage models suggest um, that inflation should uh, wage inflation should uh, breach three percent at some point in 2017. You know the economy is almost operating at full employment. Lots of surveys suggesting skills shortages. So um, you know lots of uh, uh, latent pressure um, on wages, and that can make it might make it difficult for companies uh, with large wage bills who lack some pricing power either in the US or or the global market. So I think from an investment point of view, um, you need to pick companies with good pricing power, with the ability to pass on any increase in wage costs into into the prices at which they sell their wares. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us today, Ed. That's all we have time for today. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there is anything in particular that you would like us to cover. You can contact me on my email via anna.fedorova, that's spelled F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.